Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest and a little bit different than what we've typically had as far as a focal point. Today we're going to shift away from the pure athletics and X's and O's of sport and really take a higher level look at kind of the state of the game in both amateur athletics, college athletics, and coaching in general. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Kevin McGinnis. Doc, thank you so much for coming on. Thomas Newman, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, can you just do us a favor and just kind of give us a little bit of your background? I know you've had a pretty uh, unique journey in the sense that you have been both an athlete, a coach, administrator, and now in your current role in teaching, kind of seen athletics in a, in a kind of unique lens. And if you could just kind of walk everybody through that, I think it'd be super helpful to give us context for what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Uh, I'm going to be entering my 45th year uh, in education and athletics. And I did, for people, that, for people that are still in the, in the profession, I certainly took a different route. I, I, uh, I'm a dinosaur, uh, as they say. I started out as a high school teacher, coach, and high school athletic director, and really kind of fell into coaching college basketball, um, which was years ago in 1984, and things were very, very different then. You know, and you look at the way the NCAA has evolved, and uh, especially in athletics for women, et cetera, I, I, I've seen monumental changes. And, and, and again, we can talk about for the good or for the bad, but, you know, I ended up coaching college basketball, uh, basically part-time and, and was lucky enough to have a full-time position put for me. I, I, uh, I became a head college basketball coach at the division three level. The same time was, uh, I was the director of athletics and, and, uh, I ended up getting married and raised a family and, and got out of coaching and stayed in, um, administration. I've had a great run, in administration, I've been on the Division II level, Division I level. I've been an athletic director. Uh, I spent a few years on the conference level as the commissioner, then president of the uh, Eastern College Athletic Conference. At the time, was the largest and only multi-divisional uh, intercollegiate athletic conference in the country. Uh, and, and it's as I say, it's it's just changed so much. And and now, uh, as you said, I've been able to come full circle and. Uh, I have a professorial position at Southern Connecticut State University where I'm teaching sport management and I'm the graduate coordinator of the program and very happy to be in this position right now. I mean, years ago when I was coaching basketball, I mean, first of all, I didn't, I didn't do it for the money. I mean, I got into this profession because I wanted to work with and help young people. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I'll say that, uh, so I see so many guys and people coaching college sports right now and it purely is isn't necessarily for that same reason they see the money the pomp and circumstance the lights the tv it's so different i mean when i had opportunities to coach division one basketball years ago that was the day of the restricted earnings coach which means that the third assistant could only make the equivalent of a tuition scholarship i mean i i I had the opportunity to coach division one basketball and you're talking, I was going to make $16,000, which was a significant pay cut way back then. And I just wasn't in a position to do that. I mean, that got overturned actually good. One of my best friends, Andy Greer, who's now assistant coach with the New York Knicks actually pioneered a lawsuit when he was at USC as a restricted earnings coach. And they really found that that was unconstitutional. And, and now God, the, the third assistant on the bench is making, you know, 150 to $200,000 a year. And again, don't get me, get me wrong. I don't begrudge anybody, but it's a heck of a lot different right now. There wasn't, there wasn't much difference 
in salaries many times from division two to division one. One of my, I don't mean to get off on too much of a stand tangent, but one of my stories is got Tom Penders in 1986, got hired as the head basketball coach at the University of Rhode Island. He was, his salary was $65,000 a year. I mean, I was a division two assistant at that time, making about 30. And now you're looking at Archie Miller just got hired as the head coach at University of Rhode Island, making $1.5 million plus a year, and a Division II assistant still making about $30,000 a year. So that the money has changed it so much, so, so much. And so I'm sure we'll talk about the NIL and, and, and those things moving forward. But, um, you know, I, I've, been, I've been blessed. And, and, and the thing, too, Tom, you and I have talked about it. I, haven't, I feel very good that I haven't been chasing anything. You know, I see so many young people now that are just chasing that next job. And don't get me wrong it's great to have the eye on the prize and I've always been goal oriented, but I've been drawn to the positions that I've had. And I'm very thankful for that. That I've, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I've really, really been able to, to, to enjoy the most out of every situation I've been in. So I want to take that a little, little further. We, we talk about a lot about the state of specifically strength and conditioning, call it performance or any of the support staff. What's kind of your take on that? Because, what we're seeing is that even at Division One institutions, you look at the rate and you mentioned 30 grand, if you're lucky, 10 grand unpaid and just call it the general economics. And I think obviously with a sport coach, there's wins and losses. So you can kind of look at that. But technology has changed as well for performance staff and support staff where an athletic trainer can make a real big difference in a program. A really good sports psychologist can make a real difference in the program, both in the performance, but also holistically for the students, a better experience. But how do you quantify that? Because right now we have people with master's degrees that make below minimum wage. Right now we have people that get these certifications and they're part of the medical staff, but yet, you know, again, they're, they're struggling to fill up their tanks of gas and, and there's no clear path. Undergraduate, master's, you know, you don't see really a PhD in the weight room. Maybe you do, but for the most part, there's no clear path for professional development for an individual getting into the game now. And I'd love to get your thoughts both as a coach, um, but then also as a, as an athletic director. Yeah. I mean, that's one area that has just grown immeasurably is the support staff. Uh, Like you say, athletic trainer, support psychologist, uh, you know, mental health experts, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, you know, I guess getting back in a general sense to what you talk about, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason to so many things. You know, it's not it's not like, you know, you, you're going to be a, a medical doctor. You do your residency, you start your, your, your you know, your uh, your own uh, practice, et cetera, et cetera. And I learned a long time ago in coaching that there's really no rhyme or reason. I see young people want to get into business right now. And I was thinking about that today. Uh, a young guy texted me and he's just aghast that he's not getting an interview for a job he feels he's so qualified uh and and you know one one plus two doesn't equal three necessarily in this business you know one plus two can equal five and one plus two can equal one um there really is no rhyme or reason there's really no direct path um it's 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 unfortunate in many ways but i don't know i i, I it's it's hard it's hard it's hard to it's hard to say, but I, I tell you, you, you really, what you have, you have to position yourself. That's what I always tell people. And, and um, you know, part of positioning yourself and distinguishing yourself is getting, I feel is getting credentials, uh, is getting that ed- education. Um, you know, you, I, you know, you, you talk, everybody talks about networking and yes, networking is so important. And one of my mentors who spent 25 years in the NBA 
always told me that I had to, that I had to, you know, network with people. And I said to him, I said, that's really not my MO. And then he took a breath. He looked right at me. And he said, Kev, don't worry about it. He said, what you need to do is you just do the very best job you can and people will notice. And that's really been my mantra, you know, and, and has, has it held me back sometimes? Maybe, but I, again, I don't regret it. And, 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 and I'm happy about it. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen so many people, I may be regressing a little bit here, but I see so many guys, like I said, they have a foot and a half out the door all the time, you know, because they're chasing that next job and, and just networking. And, and believe me, if you're good, people will know, you know, people will know and people will find out. And, I, and you know, as an administrator, I've, I've had to do a lot of hiring over the years. And I say, I've never hired anybody, good, bad, or different. I've never hired anybody off a resume. You know, and, and, and Mike Trangisi, the former commissioner of the Big East, said this a long time ago, it really stuck with me, is that, you know, you, you're, not, you're not looking to replace people, but you always have to have a short list uh, because when a position opens up, you always want to know who you want for that position, you know, and, and that's by observing, by talking to people. I mean, years ago, as, a, as an athletic director, I had to hire a soccer coach. Well, I called Bob DeCranian the legendary soccer coach of Southern Connecticut who won numerous national championships and put out some tremendous athletes and coaches. Ray Reed, who won a national championship at UConn, was one of his uh, protégés. I asked him to recommend somebody. Same thing when I had to hire a women's basketball coach. I called Trisha Saka Fabry at Quinnipiac, who I think is the model of coaching women's athletics and had her recommend somebody. She recommended somebody who didn't have a lot of experience but was the perfect fit. And, 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 you know, good, bad, or different, that's really the way of the world. Yeah, and I think a lot of, a lot of coaches struggle here to find their identity because, as you mentioned, you know, one foot out the door because they, they got to eat. And then at the same time, you know, they need their credentials, but they got to pay for that. And then on the flip side, it's who you know. And then there is a level of competency. And we experienced this at, um, at Yale where – the internship was so critical at seeing who people were as people. We can teach you science. We can teach you technology. But are you a team player? Do you work hard? Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to be coached? And and that process in and of itself is almost a full-time job. But again, what are your thoughts for that coach who's listening right now, who loves what they do, can't afford to live, but doesn't want to stop, but also, as you mentioned, you know, you do have to have a little bit of perseverance. How do you balance all of that? Yeah, it's interesting. But you know something? I always, I always felt I could make money. You know, when I got the opportunity to coach college basketball part-time, and I was a tenured high school teacher. I mean, I, was, I wasn't making a lot of money at that time in a relative sense. In my fifth, sixth-year teacher, I was making $13,000, which was, I mean, it was, it was certainly competitive and adequate. But, you know, I, I wanted to... I got the taste of it. I wanted to coach college basketball full time. And I'll be honest with you, I left my tenured teaching position and I went out and, and, and barely worked by myself. I had, a, I had a company that that um, that I rep for, but I was an um, educational fundraising consultant and really ran my own business while I was able to coach college basketball pretty much full time and do that full time. And, I, and it was one of the best things I ever did because I mean, I had the I had the confidence to do it. I knew I would be successful. I always knew I could make money, you know, and, and, and I told this mentor I was talking about said years ago, I said, Kev, 
you know, if you have to wait, ta- and I say this always, in all due respect to, to people in the hospitality business, he said, if you have to wait tables at night or on the weekends, you do that if you really want to do this. And, and I tell people that and you, you, if you have to volunteer, you have to volunteer. And, and people, everybody's, everybody's situation is different. Again, don't make, get me wrong, you know, and, and you know, I guess uh, I, mean, I didn't get married till I, later in life and I was single at that time. So it certainly made a difference also. But you know, and, and, and you say it's, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and, and we've talked about that. And I put a different spin on it. And it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And it's more than semantics, too. And and, uh, and, and me being able to run my own business and, and being a, a fundraising consultant. Well, with that, Southern Connecticut State University at the time where I was a part time basketball coach saw what I was doing. And they made a full time position for me as the first director of athletic development there. And that got me um, full-time into college athletics. So I, I think, you know, you'll say where there's a will, there's a way, you know, and, and, and if you're willing to make those sacrifices and, and I see young people now not willing to volunteer, nobody wants to volunteer. And the other thing too, and again, don't begrudge it. We have students coming in right now and, 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 and they want to be, you know, they want to be the next general manager of the, of the Yankees, which is great. I had a, I had a parent of an undergrad come in asking me where we had internship possibilities. And he said, well, my daughter would hope to intern for the Boston Red Sox because she wants to work for them someday. I'm, well, that's great, but there's a, there's a lot of things you have to do along the way. And, and, and uh, I think, and too many people, young people get, uh, they get caught up on titles, you know, and, and, and what's more important than a title is where you're working and who you're working with. And I say this respectfully that if you want to be in college athletics, well, if you have to sweep the floor in the field house to get into that network and let people see what you're made of, your character, your work ethic, et cetera, that's what's going to give you the opportunity. When I was first at Southern Connecticut, basically, quote, unquote, working full time. Yeah, I worked full time, but I did about seven different jobs. I did the athletic development. I taught as an adjunct in the uh, physical education department. I taught sport management classes in the, in the late 80s, early 90s as an adjunct professor. I locked the field house up three nights a week. I, I, I did game ops. I did anything and everything. And, and I think you need to be willing to do that. I just think a lot of people are having a hard time where, again, there's a path of, um, there's a path of success in many industries, but it's very easy for someone to get an unpaid summer internship, but they're certified and they have their masters and they're, and they're doing work. And then in the fall, they go do another internship and it's unpaid and again, they're doing the work because sometimes in, even with the universities, the way that they are now with, there's more money, there's more TV revenue. There's, let's just call it in general, amateur athletics has a lot more cash. It doesn't seem to be trickling down and it's convenient enough to say, oh, we'll do a GA instead of a full-time person, or we'll pay you 10 grand or 20 grand, but we're going to have you do the full-time equivalent of FTE. And I think it just rubs people uh, the wrong way. And particularly in the last two years, call it from COVID time, the amount of tactical opportunities, the amount of technology opportunities where we've really seen some of our top talent leave the collegiate ranks. And for all intents and purposes, you wanted to make it to division one. You wanted to make it to the college athletics, but suddenly now that $20,000 job working 80 hours a week doesn't look so great when, you know, you can do an H2F program or you can go do a JSOC program. So I just wonder what that will mean both short-term and long-term for 
not only the athletes, the programs, but just college athletics as a whole? Well, there's no question, you know, and, and, and it depends, depends what you want to do and what you want to get out of it too. And, 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 you know, I, again, I, and I came through the ranks certainly at a different time and I don't know if I would look at it differently today. I may. And, 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 you know, I was just, you, I was just used to working 24 seven. I mean, that was the way it was when I was at Lehman college. Well, I was the, I was the head men's basketball coach, which is a full-time job. I was the director of athletics, which is a full-time job. I was teaching six credit hours a semester, which is as much as most of the full professors were teaching. I was driving over an hour each way on my commute. And I was going into Columbia two nights a week, taking four courses. I mean, I was leaving the house 530 in the morning, coming home at 11 o'clock at night, pretty much seven days a week. But that's what I did, you know, and, 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 and I'm not advocating that. And did I miss out on a lot of things? I'm sure I did. But then again, I, I had the opportunity to experience things that other people didn't want to. And that's what I wanted in, in life. And I think a lot of people get into the profession and don't really understand. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's different. It's unique. There's no two ways about it. There isn't a distinct career path. Uh, 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 there isn't a distinct um, path of advancement, so to speak. Uh, you know, and the money, the money, well, there's, there is a lot of money in certain situations, but it's, you know, again, I'll, I'll, it, it, you know, major college, FBS athletics, it's a business. And in many instances, I've had this discussion with a gentleman. He was my uh, uh, high school assistant coach, God, 30 plus years ago. You know, and he shakes his head every time he sees a division one, a college coach get fired and just shakes his head. I can't understand it. I'm going to call the college president. He didn't do anything wrong. No, he didn't do anything wrong. But it's all based on bottom line, you know, and, and the money coming into the institution. But then again, respectfully, you know, I don't feel sorry for some of these guys because, you know, something, if you get into the profession, you have to realize that's part of it. You know, in, in a Division I uh, uh, FBS college basketball coach right now that signs a five-year contract for $8 million, most of it guaranteed, well, if you don't get – uh, uh, if you don't, you know, get the job done, and if you don't perform at the level the institution expects you to after three or four years, and you get fired, well, guess what? You still did pretty darn good um, financially. I mean, I'll never forget years ago when John Calipari left UMass to go to the the Nets. Um, he signed a five-year, fifteen million dollar contract, guaranteed. Well, it, by his second year, he was begging them to fire him. He was a fish out of water, you know, and he got fired. He got the money and. And God love him. I have all the respect in the world for Coach Cal, but he wrote a book on, you know, making a comeback. Well, respectfully, it's pretty easy to make a comeback with $10 million in the bank, too. But anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different world at that level. Um, I mean, I can see now the unfortunate thing in my eyes is that it's really trickled down to the Division Two and Division Three level. You know, that winning has become of utmost importance and the number one priority. And I thank God every day when I coached, I coached basketball for 16 years, but I was never in a position where I couldn't lose a game to teach a life lesson, you know, and, and, and to me, that was so rewarding. I mean, I look at, I'm an educator. And, and, and to me, when I was coaching basketball, that bas basketball and that basketball floor was my classroom. You know, I, I, had, I had a 25th anniversary a few years back of my championship team at Lehman College, and it was so rewarding to hear those young men come back and say, you know, how much of an influence I had on them as a person and a profession. I mean, I had two of the, two of the guys are 
now retired NYPD lieutenants, you know, and, and, and that was so rewarding. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen as much right now. I mean, and, 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 and you know, you look at division three was always the, the purest level and believe me, I think still think it is, but I see a lot of guys getting fired because they don't win games, which is so unfortunate. Well, that's the ultimate, you know, paradox. You want to have a great program. You want students to graduate. You want to win games. You want to have a good program, happy alumni. And any one of those three or four things goes wrong, that can be it. But trying to figure out, as you mentioned, how do you find that balance? But at the end of the day, if it's bottom line win percentage, you can start running into some other issues as well on the ethics and morality side. And that's, again, that separation of church and state with medical and performance that everybody kind of has their role with the athletes. Oh, no question. I, I mean, I, my mother always I had a great cliche. She used to say, you know, the more that's given to you, the more is expected of you. And in many instances, that certainly plays out to be true in the, in the world of college athletics. But now as we go forward, we've talked about athletics and specifically, I think COVID taught us a lot about the importance and the role of athletics in society. If you, again, we'll go to your crystal ball, Within the next five years, within the next 10 years, where do you th see things really evolving? And particularly, I'm speaking from the standpoint of our industry and field and performance has revolutionized. You know, we've just recently sent a bunch of our staff over to the CSCCA conference or the Collegiate Strength Coach Association and just the role of data, the role of analytics, the role of collaborative teams it's changed. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And particularly if, if you're a young coach, what leadership things or communication things might you be thinking of as you go forward and you kind of have this globalized approach towards athletics? Oh, it's certainly changed so much, especially in, in terms of uh, strength, conditioning, athletic training, performance. I mean, that's one thing I've, I've seen drastically over the years. I mean, these student athletes are just bigger, faster, stronger. Um, and I, and don't get me wrong, I think that, I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. Um, you know, as far as, you know, analytics, well, that's, I guess, another story too. You know, I am, I'm, uh, you know, analytics, I think are great, you know, and you can talk to a lot of people and a lot of coaches and everybody has the upside and the downside. I think uh, not to go on a tangent, but when you look at, especially at the next level, you know, professional sports are so driven by analytics, I really think to a fault, uh, very much to a fault, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I, again, I, I, I'm steering away from athletics indirect right now. I mean, I think, you know, as an administrator, I spent a lot of my time uh, working in development and, and, and raising money. Uh, and, and, and that's my biggest qualm right now is that development and fundraising on the college level has gotten so analytical, you know, it's become so scientific and, and, and I have a problem with that. To me, it's always, it's an art that's always going to be an art. And the same thing when you talk about coaching, you know, and, 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 and you talk about dealing with people, uh, it's, it's still, it's, it's a people profession and it's, it's got to stay rooted that way. Um, you know, you know, as a, uh, you know, as a former strength and conditioning coach, you know, it, it wasn't just working on their physical strength and ability, you had a, there was a mental aspect. I mean, Bob Knight, you know, love him, love him, love him or not love him. I mean, years ago, he always said that, you know, the most important six inches of your body is between your ears. And I'm a firm believer in that, you know, and, and uh, 
you know, if you don't have the mindset and if you don't have the attitude, and you know, one of my favorite cliches is attitude determines altitude. The better your attitude, the sky's the limit. And that's so important. And that's overlooked many times too. You know, and you look at a coach making a gut decision. I, I tell you, I've all, I, my gut has never failed me. So probably the worst decisions in my life I've made because I, I've analyzed them and maybe analytically, scientifically, et cetera. You know, and, and you look at a coach too. I, I made, I made gut decisions so many times. Yes, they were based on experience. Don't get me wrong in the things that I lived through. But, you know, I mean, Chris Palmer, very good friend of mine who coached in the NFL 25 years. He was the head coach of the Cleveland Browns at one time. You know, he ended up being a college administrator after he retired from the NFL. And he, and he said, Kev, I just can't stand, you know, the bureaucracy and all the red tape I have to go through to make a decision. When I was in a profession for years, when I had to make a decision every 25 seconds, you know, but anyway, I don't know if I'm really answering your question where it's going to go. I, who knows? I wish I had a crystal ball, but I mean, really, in a, in a, again, in a general sense, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not an analytic guy. I know it's important, you know, especially you talk about strength and conditioning. You know, there's a lot that has to go into that. You talk about, you know, nutrition, you talk about athletic training, uh, you know, look, we, I mean, it's amazing where we have gotten to right now as far as, you know, uh, what our orthopedics can do and can get a guy back on the field right now. You know that. I think that's tremendous. I mean, 100 years ago, I would sprain an ankle. They put me in a cast for six weeks and take another five weeks to, to start walking again. And, and now guys are back playing in two or three days. I think that's phenomenal, too. So, you know, there's, 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 there's a definite balance that has to come through between uh, analytics and, and everything else. And um, as far as you talk about young people coming in right now, I I'll tell you in a very basic sense, Billy Lang. Billy Lang right now is the head men's basketball coach at St. Joseph University in Philadelphia. He spent a few years in the NBA with the Philadelphia 76ers. Well, we hired him as the men's basketball coach when I was at U.S. U Merchant Marine Academy. And, you know, Billy, uh, I kind of took Billy under my wings. He came in to me right from the get-go. And I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, Kev, I want to be a major league college basketball coach. What do I need to do? I said, Billy, there are a lot of great coaches out there. There are a lot of super coaches out there that, that, that know the game in, inside and out, can teach the game inside and out. I said, the way to differentiate yourself is to, bottom line, from A to Z, it's all about people and how you treat people. Billy left us and he went to Villanova as an assistant. Well, the U.S. Naval Academy job opened up and Billy was the director of ops, um, actually at Villanova. He wasn't even, quote, quote, an assistant coach at that time. U.S. Naval Academy men's basketball head coaching position opened up. He called me up, Kev, should I apply for it? I said, Bill, you absolutely you should. So he applies for it. He was a finalist with another gentleman who on paper was at bigger programs, bigger positions, was a full-time, full assistant coach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he, he had worked for, uh, for the same person that Billy did. Well, bottom line, there were two finals for the job. Well, when the calls were made about those two individuals, what differentiated Billy was his character and the respect and the way he treated people, and he got the job, and that's carried him. And he, to this day, he always looks at me, and he nods and smiles and says, Kev, it's from A to Z, it's all about how you treat people. Yeah, and I think that naturally people have their own way that they do that. But I also know there is professional growth that you can do in that, even just being aware. I'll never forget the first time I heard the word emotional intelligence. People think oh, about yeah. IQ, then you have EQ. But those things, especially in a professional setting, 
those are things that have to be polished. Those are things that have to be refined and you have to find out not only how to apply it, when to apply it, but also know how to kind of shift through the different gears of your coaching, of your communication, because it, it's really it's, it's really more complicated than people might think of really taking the time and even knowing how to analyze a situation from multiple perspectives and then receive feedback from your staff, receive <laughs> feedback from your students and do it in a way that's open and you know honest so that people feel comfortable, but then still go ahead and make your decision as a leader. Well, the other part is it's success, successful intelligence, you know, and, and I've done work, Dr. George Sellett, who was an All-American basketball player at, uh, at um, uh, oh, Stanford years ago, and he's, a, he's become a, a, a practicing psychologist, etc. He started Sport for Life, and the premise behind Sport for Life is that in the proper context, all the skills that you need to be successful in life can be learned through your experience in sport, and I I totally believe that. And I totally live by that. And, and, and that's the one thing that I loved about participating in sports. And I tell you, it's made me the person who I am. And, and as a college professor, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm being hypocritical, but it's not what I learned out of a book or in a classroom. It's what I've learned dealing with people, working with people, you know, and, and you talk about leadership. There's a lot to be said for that, you know, and, and, um, I, I, I don't know. I think I think that gets overlooked so many times now. And I guess as a coach, you know, I mean, I was an educator first and foremost. And, and to me, those intangibles and those life skills were were just and those successful intelligence skills were first and foremost so important. You know, uh, being prompt, uh, being respectful, etc. And 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 unfortunately now, for the sake of winning games. Uh, guys look the other way. And as I said before, I was never in a position where I had to do that. And, and, and I feel, I feel great about that. And, and you hope that still happens. And, you know, and, and I tell you, Jim Barron, uh, who was the men's basketball coach at University of Rhode Island when I first got there, he coached for many years, was very successful. I, to this day, I just love Jim Barron because that was first and foremost important to him. He had wonderful young men on the team. They respect, they, they represented themselves very well. They represented the university very, very well. And Jim wouldn't put up with anything but uh, that good behavior. I'm not saying other guys don't, but I've seen too many people look the other way. Right. And that's where, when we start getting into your, your relationships, your accountability is typically what I've seen, at least from my perspective, is that that's what gets tested. So we have really strict rules. We have really strict standards until we don't. We have really strict, you know, policies until we don't. And that accountability is kind of either what builds you or erodes, you know, your, people's faith in you. Because again, as you go forward, you think about just even within a team or even within a department, every day things are happening. Transactions are happening thousands of times a day. And that culture, which is driven by the leaders, is either going to help accelerate issues, accelerate solutions, or eventually lead to erosion. And I think that's one of the areas where if we can objectively quantify, you know, what we're doing, what our efforts are, I think not only does that help you from a, you know, intellectual standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint that we are in the right direction, because many coaches, they make a lot of sacrifices. You mentioned many of the sacrifices you had to make coming up. And I think that's still true to this day of individuals saying, you know, one of the biggest differences of, you know, the past year was, you know, during COVID, I spent more time with my kids. And I think, you know, I spent more time with my wife, and it made me really think about 
what is quality of life? What is, you know, this profession that I'm in and how is that shaped? And so again, as we go forward as leaders, making sure that, you know, we have our checks and balances in whatever form that may be to make sure that the people that, you know, are following us feel good about the direction we're headed. Yeah. And, and you look at this, you know, the generations coming through right now, uh, respectfully, so many of these young people aren't held as accountable as certainly I was and we were when I was younger. younger. And they don't necessarily take responsibility for their own actions like uh, previous generations did. And that's not good either, you know, but again, I, I'm going to sway a little bit, maybe off topic, but, you know, I have a peeve right now with youth sports and in general, I mean, don't get me wrong. Kids have more opportunities than we ever had when I was growing up. But when I was growing up, we walked down the schoolyard and, and, and with a bunch of bunch of guys and, 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 and played. But for example, one thing you will never see right now in youth sports, which I think was one of the most powerful things when, when we used to play in the schoolyard, was the do-over. All right. We called our own fouls playing basketball. I called a foul on somebody. Tom, you say, no, I didn't follow you. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. We know we may argue for about three or four minutes, but ultimately what will happen is we do, we'll have a do-over. Uh, but we had negotiating skills that kids don't have these days. You talk about picking teams. When we went down to schoolyard, there were, there were 10 guys down there. Do you think that those teams were even all the time? Absolutely, because we wouldn't let them be swayed one way or the other. Now, when the parents pick teams, and, and you don't think they try to stock the teams in their kids' favor, et cetera, et cetera. And playing time it's, and all that, we never had to worry about that because we, we were in charge. But we developed so many interpersonal, successful till, skills, uh, 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 you know, being able to negotiate. Uh, to me, that was wonderful. Yeah, I, I say this as a father with a teenager that sometimes, you know, the, the minor inconvenience becomes a giant chafe. And how do you push through that? And uh, absolutely shocked when something isn't fair and you're going to have to deal with it. And what can you do to make the situation better? And I think that there are a lot of life lessons in athletics when we would uh, look at recruiting and someone would say, what do I do to get my son or daughter recruited? Well, stop. Does your, does your athlete want to do this? Does your, does your son or daughter want to do this? And let them go forward. And, and I've had to, you know, as I've gone forward and I have friends with kids that, you know, you really have to make sure that you play mom and dad and not coach and not agent and not general manager. Because again, at the end of the day, everybody, everybody, no matter what level you get to, you're a Hall of Famer, all pro, you will stop playing at some point. And the lessons that you have learned throughout those years are either going to really contribute to making you into a great, successful person or not. Absolutely. You know, certainly when I played, all the guys, we played for the love of the game. You know, we talk about high school sports and youth sports. We, we didn't have visions of grant. None of us, none of us were pursuing an athletic scholarship. None of our parents were looking for us to get that scholarship to go to college. You know, and it was just, it was just so, so different, you know, and, and, and believe me, there's pluses and there's minuses. There's, there's good and bad to all of it, but I wouldn't trade the experience I had for anything. Do you think some of that challenge state versus threat state process oriented versus goal oriented outcome is partly due to the fact that an individual can jump on their phone and see the likes that the person gets or go to the recruiting sites or look at their rankings. Oh, I'm, I'm the number five quarterback or I'm the number 12 running back in my state. And there's a natural gamification that you didn't have because go back in time to pay phones, go back in time to no phones where 
you kind of lived in your own bubble. The individual in Wisconsin wasn't thinking about what was going on down in Miami, but now it's a, it's a phone screen away. And do you think some of that technology has now gone in and shaped the kind of physical culture that the students are going through on a day-to-day basis? Oh, no question. You know, and, 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 and you know, and there's so much of the eye in the eye, eye in the me right now too, you know, and, and uh, kids get built up to a, to a point, certainly to a fault. I mean, one of the things, I mean, the level I coached at, you know, we didn't, we didn't go after that five-star athlete because we weren't going to get involved with him. Uh, I mean, they were going to the next level. And, and, and I always looked at the intangibles and I was always able to put a team together. The two, the last team I coached, uh, that last year I coached at Southern Connecticut. I said this respectfully. We won 20 games, played for the conference championship. We had no superstars. We had a great team. When I was at Lehman College, we had, we had six guys that averaged in double figures. Everybody played for each other. You know, and, 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 and uh, you know, the old saying where the, the whole was much greater than the sum of the individual parts. And to me, you can't, you can't learn a lesson better than that. And it's no different putting any time, any organization together. You know, I'll tell, I, I, in a very primitive sense, I'll say in class, what's, what's the most important part of a car? Well, people will say, oh, oh, oh the wheels or, or, the, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the steering wheel or the brakes. Well, guess what? You take any one of those away, that car's not going to run. You know, it's all got to work together and, and 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 mesh with each other. And I just love that. You know, I mean, the old, the, the buzzword today is synergy. You know, years ago, the same word was teamwork. And 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 uh, and, and I've always I know nothing about me, but I've always been a team player. You know, every position I've been in as a superior subordinate, my number one goal is to make everyone around me look good. You know, and, 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 and it's come out and it's helped me so much. And you talk about in a general sense, this is one thing too. This general, you know, people, what, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? I never looked at that. It's what can I do for you? I've always looked at myself as a steward. I love helping people. And, and, and I don't do because of this, but the more I've helped people, it's come back to me a hundredfold. And I think people need to realize that and, 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 and need to be, to, to, to be coached that way to understand that, you know, I mean, John F. Kennedy, God rest his soul, when he used to say, it's not what your country can do for you, it's what you can do for your country. Well, in a, in a global sense, what can you do? You need to look at yourself as a steward. You know, when I was when I was raising money, you know, or looking for support, I think when I was at Lehman College, we didn't have a support staff. Every day at 10 o'clock in the morning, I went out to that, that, that coffee truck to get a bagel and a coffee. But on my way back, I stopped somewhere else. Right, to have people know me and make friends with me, and 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 I got more support and help from people. You know, I, I I'm a Steve. I I've studied leadership. I practice leadership. I'm a Stephen Covey disciple, and he has what he calls the, an emotional bank account. He says everyone has an emotional bank account. And what you need to do is keep putting deposits in a person's emotional bank account, whether it's a please or a thank you or doing something for somebody. Because then when you ask for something. All right. It's like, hey, here you go. What took you so long? Go ahead. But if you keep asking, asking, asking without making deposits, it's like a bank account. You're going to be overdrawn. You know, and, and I've had people, I've never, I, I, you know, I've never had a problem. I, first of all, I don't, you know, I don't like necessarily asking people for something, but I have never had a problem asking people's help because I've always positioned myself to help them. People are always willing to, you know, and you, you look at, uh, you know, so many people now, like, like they're looking for support. How can you help me? What can you do for me? Well, to be honest with you, you know, it's a two-way street. The more you do for something, the more you help people, it's going to come back to you a hundredfold. 
couldn't agree more that the number of times where, you know, as you go through and you're a team player and then crickets and then it's a recommendation, it's a this, it's a that. And not, again, you shouldn't do it as you mentioned. You know, I think one of the key things in Covey's teachings is it's got to be authentic. You genuinely have to really care about someone and caring. And I think people see that. People, people aren't dumb. They know when, you know, you're doing things because you want to look good versus when it's just the right thing to do. Um, but certainly coming back full circle, it seems like when you do those kind of things um, and you ask, when you do make an ask, it's a good sign when people have, of course, I'd love to help. Because again, that's just kind of the energy as it goes around and something to be super mindful of. And, and every moment in time in athletics is unique. I was laughing as you were talking about putting the team together, the teamwork. I, I couldn't help but think of every time we would start an off season. It was like watching concrete start to harden. Some years there was a lot of rebar that was put in. Some years there was not. Sometimes there were cracks and we had to fill it up and it's this evolution. But the nice thing about athletics is that every year it's a little microcosm of a reload and reset. And I think that ability to have something positive happen, win a championship, lose a season, something negative, to be able to hit a hard reset, I think that's probably the largest largest benefit that athletics can give someone is the ability to reset reform a team and that's what makes them so adaptable to be able to go into business to be able to have a relationship to be a part of a team um, on any level and so that's the value that i think that often gets overlooked yeah and and, and young people are they don't experience failure anymore you know and and and, and you have one thing i've seen with a lot of young people now they're so afraid of making a mistake for some reason i was never afraid of making a mistake you know, and, and, and I had I had confidence and I learned, believe me, I've had I've had I've had my share uh, 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 of mistakes. I've had my share of adversities, but I thank God every day because it's made me so much stronger. You know, and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll always say, too, that, you know, I think arrogance is the ultimate side of ultimate sign of weakness. And I think humility is the ultimate sign of strength. You see so many people, they, the, way that, uh, the way they get forward, they think is by patting themselves on the back, you know? And I think humility is just so important. I mean, confidence is one thing. Arrogance is a whole nother thing too. And, and, and uh, I, 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 again, you can't, you can't, you can't be humble enough. You need to be confident, but you can't worry about making mistakes. You know, it's okay to get knocked down. It's okay to get knocked down. What's not good is if you don't get back up again, you know, and I think the more you get knocked down, you're going to learn from it. Well, I think one of the things that people don't understand is the role of that sandbox environment where you can fail. Because I will say, though, nobody wants to fail where there's a setback. And again, failure because it didn't work out is a lot different than failure because you didn't prepare. Failure because you didn't respect the situation. So what I've often said to young coaches is, did you prepare the way you were supposed to? Yes or no? And in my role where I had, say, students uh, learning underneath me, like, did we give you a protocol that worked? Yes. Okay. Did you follow it? No. All right. We'll go back and rerun that protocol. But that's one of the, the most important things about your experiences. Don't put yourself in a situation that's, you know, all I did was fold towels. That's super safe, but you didn't really learn. What is, what is the thing that you're trying to get out of it? And you know what? I, I've had individuals go to other schools and say, hey, the standards weren't as high as it was when I was there. Well, right, but is that a bad thing? Well, yeah, I wasted my time. No, you now understand better than I could ever explain to you why we have a pre-lift checklist, why we do a medical check, why we have speed dial of every athletic trainer. So those things that, again, the first time you saw them, 
you didn't understand why. Now it's like that FedEx arrow on the side of the truck. You can't not see it. And so it has greater significance. And I think that, again, is just an area that if you're listening and you're a young coach, is making sure that you have a plan for every opportunity that you get or not get and try to learn from it. Because every day should be an experiential growth situation, not just passively, you know, idly floating by. Well, that's the key word is opportunity. You know, people say, boy, you take in some challenging situations. And yeah, you might call them a challenge, but to me, they were an opportunity. I was a head high school basketball coach when I was 22 years old. Well, the word on the street was the only reason I got the job was because nobody wanted it. They've only won, they only won two games a year for five years before that. But maybe I was young enough, naive enough, dumb enough to think we could be pretty good. And, you know, we went out We and, and, and all my goal for those kids was to get a little better every day you know we went out and got our butts kicked the first night we lost our first four games we ended up winning 12 of our last 16 games once went to the quarterfinals of the state tournament but they believed and i didn't put any undue pressures on them. when i took her over at lehman college that program was 8 and 95 for the four years before i got there you know and, and i didn't i got hired late i didn't have time to recruit i recruited i i kept good young men on the team that were going to represent themselves, represent the, the program, the university, at the college at, 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 a, at a high level. Well, we, we didn't win a game, you know, but you know something? We never got beat. We lost a lot of times. And there's a difference between losing and getting beat. We prepared. We worked hard. I had kids come to my office saying, Coach, I love watching your team. They play so hard. They, 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 they're so intense. Roger Rubin, who writes for the, the uh, writes, he's a beat writer for New York Yankees now, was writing for the, um, uh, it was for the Post that at that, that time, uh, and, and he came in to do an article on us. And I said, I said, sure, you can talk to the kids. We were all in seventeen, and he was looking for dirt. He came into my office afterwards. He said, Kev, if one more kid tells me how much fun they're having and how hard, hard they're working, I think I'll puke. Well, I wanted, I was ready to go over the top of the desk to him, and my assistant had to hold me back. But that was the the mindset those kids had. And your kids are your best recruiters. And then we went out and got some kids that could could play. We started the next season all ten and zero. You know, and, and, and those kids achieved at such a high level. And, and to me, that's that's fun. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, and, and you talk about, you know, people talk about overachievers. Well, you know, I don't think there's any such thing as an overachiever. I think people that get termed overachiever are the people that probably come closest to feeling they're, you know, they're reaching their full potential. But I do think there are such things as underachievers. You know, and, and, and uh, I've always go, I've always looked at myself again, not to sound arrogant as an achiever. You know, I've always been goal oriented. I've always set goals for myself. You know, I've always been self-motivated, you know, and, and, and you talk about, I talk to young people all the time, you know, what's, what's a motive? It's a reason for doing something. And I think you have to have goals, you know, but I've always had, I've had, I've had my dream goals. Don't get me wrong. I my mean, long-term goals, but what's more important is the short-term goals along the way and, and, and setting those up. Well, Doc, I could keep talking to you and, and asking you more questions on any number one, any of the number of uh, things we've discussed today. But I know we often have listeners that want to reach out and connect with our speakers. What, what is the best way for someone to get a hold of you if they're interested in either personal growth or their professional stuff or if they're interested in your program? What, what's the best contact uh, for you? Um, certainly email me. Um, it's K McGinnis, K-M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S-S-1 at southernct.edu. I'd love to talk to anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. And again, we'll be in touch and uh, hope you have a great summer. Talk to you. Thanks, Tom. God bless.